Well, I first met this handsome young man when I was out inspecting a mine. Now, you might think that is an unusual thing for a young lady of 18 to do. However, my father did not seem to think it all that strange. It was he who was going out to inspect the mine. So, I went out with my father, Zenas Evans, as he was a lumberman and a prospector. And he was trying to do a bid for the mine to see how much lumber it would take in order to frame it out. Needed to go inspect it to see how much it would take, so I got to tag along. Now at one point, as we were out in this mine and the ground was very rough and unstable, I lost my footing. And I began to take what was going to be quite a nasty tumble. And I was pretty sure when I hit the ground it was going to hurt a great deal. But instead, I found myself caught in the strong arms of the Irish young man who was the mine owner, or was the the mine manager. And at that point, as we often say in our family, when he caught me, he never put me down. <laughs> we were married in 1872, not very long after that. Now we continued to live in Ophir after our marriage. We got married in the Walker residence where he had been working for the Walker brothers. And it was actually in their mine that he was employed. We continued to live in the Ophir mine manager's house. However, when I moved in, it was a dismal bachelor's lodging. So I had to give it a bit of a feminine touch and there was a great deal of work to do. And it was in fact at this time that our first daughter was born, Margaret. We have a bit of a tradition in our family where the eldest girl is named Margaret. So there are quite a few of us Margarets and we called her Madge to help keep things straight. Now, from the time that we lived in Ophir, Things always seemed to be changing for us. Every few years, there would be some big new change. And it was at that time in 1875 when my husband was reassigned by the Walker Brothers to a new mine, the Alice Mine, up in Butte, America. So it wasn't long after that that he had to leave to go and start setting things up and getting his business dealings arranged. I remained in Ophir for a short time to have our second child, who we named Mary, but referred to as Molly. And then I followed him up there with these two small children in tow. Now you can imagine that Butte and where we were settled in Walkerville was quite a wild place. I'm originally from Ohio, where I was born. My family had come out west, and I had been living in mining camps for most of my life. So although it was a bit of a rough and tumble world, it wasn't too unfamiliar to me. Again, we moved into the mine manager's house, which was a dismal bachelor's lodging <laughs> that I, again, had to fix up. Now, while we were in Butte, when we first became involved with that area of mining, everyone was using silver. Silver was the metal of the day. But Marcus, being an astute businessman, <coughs> saw that copper also would be quite valuable. Now, he had located a mine, the Anaconda Mine, that he felt was going to be an excellent investment. And he even went and asked the Walker Brothers if they would like to invest with him. They declined, not interested, and he was able to get funding from our longtime supporter, Mr. Hurst. However, there was a period of time in between when he sold out his shares to the Walker Brothers and when Mr. Hurst's money was able to come in in which Marcus was no longer the mine manager for the Alice Mine, 
which meant that we were no longer living in the Maya manager's house, which I had finally just got livable. At that time, we had to move into other lodgings in Butte, and while we were waiting, these were slightly mean times for us. In order to make ends meet, I took in laundry and was trying to make sure that I could keep my little family afloat. That was also about the time I was expecting our third child, Marcus II. I was greatly relieved when we were able to purchase the Anaconda Mine and it started turning a profit. It was then that we were able to move into what I would consider the first upscale house that the little Bailey family had been able to afford. When we moved into that home, it wasn't too much longer before our youngest, our little Hattie, was born. Her name was Harriet, but as you can tell, we liked going by nicknames instead. So that brought our family to the total of six, and we were doing quite well at this time, and so I invited the rest of my family to come and join us in Butte. And at that point, we were all living in Butte, but again, change is never far behind. As the Anaconda mine was successful, Marcus had realized that it was simply ridiculous to be sending raw ore all the way to Wales, which was the only place that had a copper smelting plant. So instead, he determined that we should build one locally. And hence, the town of Anaconda was born, as we needed a water supply in order to provide for the smelting works. Well, as the Anaconda smelting operation grew, and a few other reasons inspired us to leave Butte, where the Clarks lived, <laughs> and go to Anaconda, which is a far more lovely town, as we were much more involved in its creation. Now, again, change is never far behind. And although we continued to keep a home in Anaconda, and eventually we even leased an apartment in New York City so that the children and I could be able to have more opportunities when we were there, we also began purchasing properties in the Bitterroot Valley. Now, at this time, Marcus also needed a large amount of wood for the smelter and the mines and the other parts of the mining process. And so this area over here with its vast forests was a very valuable asset to us. And it was during this time in the 1880s when he purchased what would become the Bitterroot Stock Mine. One of the locations was the old Chapin place. And it was the old Chapin house that we decided would make our perfect summer home. Now, I should specify that I really don't mean the house itself. Small. It was a lovely home, and probably 20 years earlier, I would have been quite happy with it. But it was definitely not going to meet the needs of what we were looking for. For those of you who did visit our home yesterday, you probably didn't even notice that at one point, there was a tiny little house. We did keep part of it, and then we built and built and built. But the original Chapin house is still slightly in there. Now, we wanted a home that we could invite large numbers of guests. I greatly enjoy having bridge parties, and I definitely needed enough room to fill the house with ladies playing bridge. Unfortunately, the Chapin house just wasn't going to do. So we began our first large expansion. And by 1890, we had a large Victorian mansion with enough lodging space for guests, with a nice kitchen, and the amenities that we would need to make our guests really feel at home. However, I decided it needed to be a little bit better. 
<laughs> so by 1896, we had added on. I greatly enjoyed spending the summer evenings out on the porch. There is nothing more lovely than spending some time out on the porch with great friends and great conversation. So we added more to it and the large gables. And while it looks quite lovely, it is a beautiful Queen Anne home, Marcus didn't like it. He told me that he felt like it looked like a church. <laughs> now, Mr. Daly, wonderful man, God rest his soul, was not necessarily the most church-going man. <laughs> he did not have a problem with it, and being a good Irishman, he was a member of the Catholic Church, but he didn't necessarily go every Sunday. And so this house apparently did not quite make him feel at ease. Now, I think that he would greatly enjoy the most recent renovation that we have just completed. The Georgian version of this house was based on some of the styles of architecture that we had seen in our travels in Europe. One of the things that we enjoyed doing was going to the continent to travel about, to socialize, and to see the world. And as we were traveling to many of these different places, we enjoyed seeing the other homes and the architecture that people were using. Now, this style is about 100 years old, but we like the classic feel of it, with the nice, neat lines. And it looks a lot less like a church. <laughs> but unfortunately, Marcus did not get to see this latest revision, as he did pass away in November of 1900. Because again, change is never far behind. Now, at that point, although I had always been aware of Marcus's business dealings, I became the sole decision maker, and I was the one who needed to make sure that our family was going to continue to be financially solvent into the future. So, I had an audit done. And it was very important to me that if I were going to be making decisions for my family and for our holdings, then we needed to know what was going on. So, the results of those audits have created even more changes for us, for our Bitterroot Valley, and I will have an expert come and share with you, as they shared with me, a big clearer picture of what was going on with our family holdings. Your business failing. Marcus had put together 22,000 acres to create the Bitterroot stock farm. And so when he passed away in 1900, um, Mrs. Daly brought in an auditor who had worked for Marcus. And he decided that things weren't running quite as smoothly as they could. Um, he had arranged it in different departments and different ranches, and each ranch had a foreman, um, but they weren't working that well together. So she decided to incorporate, and in uh, January 1st, 1902, the Bitterroot Stock Farm was incorporated. And 5,000 shares were issued of which all but five went to Mrs. Daly. <laughs> five, each one of the other board members each got one share. And the other board members were um, either family friends or family members. So she still had a definite control over what was going on. Um, she also rearranged some of the departments. Um, before Marcus had died, they had started talking about getting rid of some of the racehorses that he had been so famous for. And so she sold off the rest of them. Um, and then she started creating some new enterprises. Uh, sheep was one of the biggest ones. 
And for a while in this valley, there were over 200,000 sheep, of which 22,000 belonged to the Cyclops. Uh, she did keep the cattle, but she also started departments in um, bees with honey, um, hogs, poultry, and orchards. She started planting apple trees. Um, her first overall manager was a man named P.J. Shannon, and he was the overall supervisor of all the different ranches up until 1911. And then it was replaced by a gentleman named um, Mr. Crawford. And Mr. Crawford was the overall supervisor until 1947, seven after her death in 1941. So they ran each of the departments as a separate entity. Um, they each had their own sort of account, and they would trade things back and forth. Money didn't actually pass hands, but on the books, they were keeping track of what this ranch raised and how much money they were bringing in and what they were selling to the other ranch. The sheep were the things that were making most of the money. Um, the cattle had a couple of good years, but mostly they were losing money. Um, Mrs. Daly will get back and talk about this in a moment, but uh, with the, um, uh, she managed to make a lot, of, a lot of money, continued to make profit. Um, she also was interested in doing things like, um, she bought a, a gold mine in Alaska, for example. And then she had her son-in-law go up and check it out and, and give her advice as to whether she should keep it or not. So she still was really keeping her hand in the business. So after getting a very clear picture of what was going on and making some decisions about further changes, there were a lot of things going on in our business dealings, but also in the valley itself. Every single summer, I continue to come back there as my planet is going forward. And at the mansion, it has the best resources for enjoying Montana at its greatest. I love to fish. There's wonderful fishing in this area. I love to be outside. We have a lovely lake area that you can paddle around in boats on. There's wild animals that you can see out your window that come through. So I made sure every year my butler, Mr. Cutler, and his wife, Catherine, and I, would make sure that we made a trip out to Hamilton, Montana every single year. And it was through our visits here that we got to see the many changes in the valley as well. For one thing, we traded in our carriages for cars over the years. When we first arrived here in the 1880s, it was more like a, a sparsely settled little village. People were very informal. And over the years, as we were here, we noticed that people became a little bit more like polite society where instead of just saying hello to each other by first name on the street, they would call each other by Mrs. or Mr. so-and-so. We also noticed that people started using more formal calling cards when they would go to visit. And I greatly enjoyed having community members come to the home. We would often have soirees with loud music or have bridge parties. And whenever there was an event going on in town, whether it be a wedding or whatever community event was going on, I would always try to make it if I could. And if I went to a wedding, I always made sure that I gave the bride a good present in case she ended up living in a dismal bachelor's lodging too. <laughs> <laughs> 
Now, one of the only constants is change itself. And with many of these changes, both in my family and also in the Bitterroot Valley, each generation gets to leave its mark. And I love recording what was going on. So if I have a camera in my hand or these very fancy new video motion cameras where you can capture the movement, I made sure that I always had one of those so that I could experiment out of the house seeing what my children were doing or what my grandchildren were doing. <coughs> and so as my story continues, my children and my grandchildren begin to play a more important role. I have some very lovely in-laws that I have really relied on to help give me advice and to help me, such as going to check out the gold mine that I purchased in Alaska. And it is through them that our daily story continues. And so, as a very proud mother, I would like to share with you some of the stories of my children and my grandchildren, but I will let another continue those stories. As she mentioned earlier, um, we have two of our daughters here that had a very significant role in helping over the years. Um, on the right is Molly, Mary. She was born back in the 1870s. Um, she is the one that took over the care of her mother as she started aging and was always there with her every summer when they came out, was with her back in New York. Molly married a gentleman named James Gerard, who was the ambassador to Germany during World War I. Um, they were there for four years until the U.S. entered the war, and then they were kicked out. But during that time, when the other countries, such as uh, Great Britain, had to leave, they took over the responsibility for all those citizens as well. And Molly is the one that organized a group of women to start uh, helping these citizens get visas, get train tickets or boat tickets or whatever they needed to get out of the country. So she turned her ballroom into a huge room with a lot of secretaries and helped all these citizens get out of Germany. Um, Hattie married a count uh, in Hungary and in 1910, so she witnessed both World War I and World War II. During World War I, she turned her home into a hospital and she purchased the first x-ray machine from New York and had it sent over to Hungary. Then during World War II, her husband was um, picked up by the Nazis and put in a concentration camp. And she continued to run the estate. And then as the Germans and then as the Russians came in, she gathered up all the women in the village, brought them into her estate to protect them from the Russians. She was uh, not anxious to leave Hungary because she was afraid they were going to take over the estate. And it was Molly that kept urging her to get out and come back to the state. So she finally did in um, uh, 1946. This is Molly's husband. Um, he did a lot to help advise Mrs. Daly over the years. He was a lawyer, um, and you can see many other things. He's written several books. If you want to know more about him, he's written a book called My Four Years in Germany. And he's also written a book called My 83 Years in America. And this is uh, Hattie's husband, um, Count Anton Chigray. He was also known as Tony. 
And this is their daughter, Margaret. And Margaret is the one that now becomes really important. Um, this is her in her younger years in Hungary. Now you have to understand this girl was raised <coughs> in Hungary in a huge estate. All the servants and nannies and everything you can imagine. Only child, spoiled rotten. <laughs> um, her father loved horses, and so she developed that love as well. And then all of a sudden, World War II happened. Her father's thrown in a concentration camp. Uh, the Germans come in and take over their estate. She's having to cook for them. Um, and then followed by the Russians, who she said were much worse than the Germans. So you can only imagine what she went through. She finally gets out and gets to the States in 1947, penniless. But her Aunt Molly, who had no children, um, took her over. And when her aunt died, she inherited her aunt's money. And that's what she used to buy out the rest of her cousins and take over the bitter at Doc Park. So um, by the time she takes it over, it had been neglected. A lot of the land had been leased out and was not being taken care of. So she hired a gentleman named Ken Kautz, and he became the overall supervisor until 1972. And the first thing he did was start fixing fences, flattening buildings that were falling down. And then he started looking, by this time the sheep had gone. Um, by 1942, there were almost no sheep left in this valley. So it was all cattle. But for some reason, the U.S. cattlemen had thought smaller cattle were better. And the Canadians had said, no, bigger cattle were better. Well, Ken agreed with that philosophy, and he went up to Calgary, started buying the bigger bulls, built up the cattle from 600 to about 1,600, getting them much bigger, and started making a profit with the cattle. Um, Margaret always maintained control over the horses, though. She, uh, with her love of horses, she had um, purchased a number of the Hungarian horses that um, General Patton had brought over. And so she was building up the Hungarian horse herd here in America. And she always maintained control of that part while Ken controlled the rest of uh, the operations. Was a humanitarian, much like her mother and her grandmother was. Um, she did a lot to help the Hungarians through the years, um, clothing drives. At one point in 1958, when uh, there was a uprising in Hungary, she was over there driving a car up and down the border, picking up any people that managed to get out. And even though the border was mine, um, she still felt her life was only one, and she was trying to save many other lives. Um, she did a lot in this valley to help people understand how to take care of horses. She sponsored 4-H groups. Um, if children didn't have the money to pay for it, she would pay for it. She had uh, riding clinics. She also had the famous trail rides here for a number of years. Um, where the horses, where it was more important that the horse came across the finish line in good shape as opposed to being the first one across the finish line. Um, she had many interests. She was a, rom a romantic, um, loved 
uh, classical music, would like to go to the opera and piano. She also liked to read. She loved um, books, and when she would come out for the summer, she would bring trunk loads of books. Um, one of her favorites was Mrs. Polifax, who was um, an older woman that supposedly was working for the CIA and traveled all around. Um, she also, whenever she got interested in something, she really got interested in something. Uh, there are a stack of information pamphlets on um, fallout shelters. Um, she also studied weed control, um, pesticides, effects of pesticides on animals. She was totally against using pesticides. Um, she was one of the first environmentalists. Uh, she was strongly influenced by the book um, by Rachel Carson. Silent Spring. Silent Spring, right. Um, so, uh, an incredibly interesting woman. She also had an estate in Maryland where she kept many of her horses during the winter time. And uh, when she passed away in 1984, she left the estate in Maryland to her stepdaughter, uh, Ava Bettinier, and she left the mansion to her here in uh, Hamilton to her stepson, Francis Bettinier. So at this point, I'm going to have Darlene come back up, and she's going to talk about what's going on with the mansion. <clears throat> Well, after the death of Mrs. Daly in 1941, we don't know exactly what year it was, but the house was all boarded up, and it remained that way for over 40 years. The Countess had no desire to live in this house. She was uh, single at the time that she took over running the ranch, and we're you're thinking probably 1950s or so, and uh, these, these big homes by then were kind of a thing of the past. So again, she just left it all boarded up. When she passed away in 1984, um, it went to her stepchildren. And because they were not blood-related, they had to pay almost 75% inheritance tax on the property. So they opened up the home and had a huge auction of all the remaining furniture out of it in 1986. Well, that got the interest of some people here in the valley. And so they decided that they were going to try to save the mansion. And they came to that auction. They were able to acquire about one-third of what was being sold. And, of course, they um, told everybody what they were trying to do because they had no idea if they were going to be able to get the house or not. They knew they were going to have furniture, but they didn't know what they were going to do with it. But anyway, so they worked with the state of Montana and with the Bastionier family. And they said, well, we will be totally responsible for opening the house up to the public and for the restoration of the home, and for staffing it and all of that, if the state of Montana will own it. Well, the state of Montana did forgive some of the taxes. The small group of people that became the Daly Mansion Preservation Trust took out a loan for the rest of it. And in 1895, I believe it was, they finished paying off that loan. This is our 29th year of having this home open to the public. And we are so proud of this wonderful group of people through all these years, and especially those first ones that had the vision and the passion. As much as I love the place, 
I'm not sure at that point in time I would have went, oh, yeah, I'll take a, a loan out on my house. <laughs> but there were some that did that. So we're very thankful for all of them and for all the people through these years and including our group right now. All we are stepping stones for the next generation. So hopefully it will continue on forever and ever and ever. And another hundred years from now, somebody else will be standing up here talking. Or maybe me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we'll uh, be talking about this wonderful, wonderful place. Thank you so much for attending.